Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Russ Mallon to the show. After majoring in electrical engineering and minoring in economics at MIT, Russ was a material scientist specializing in microchips and circuit boards. During the stock market bubble, he put his math and economics education to work trading currencies, stocks, and options at the Philadelphia Exchange, the CBOE, and Amex. Russ changed career paths and went into private tutoring because he saw an opportunity to transform math and science education. He has been teaching math and science at all levels for 10 years. He taught Algebra 1 at Mu School and was instantly attracted to the unique approach of the school. Russ is looking forward to integrating the Muse virtual foundations of seat to table and sustainability in the science program. Russ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. Thank you for having me on. It's a great opportunity. Russ, thank you for joining us. Russ, where are you currently located? I am in Lake Balboa, California, which is a, a subdivision of Los Angeles. How's the weather out there today? It is perfect. It's 75 and sunny. So California living up to its word, huh? Uh, yeah, well, except for the 120 degrees we experienced about a month ago. That's September 3rd, 4th weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, I think somewhere around there. That was quite terrible from what I heard. So Russ, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? So uh, I've been thinking about this and... I would say I used to be an options trader in Philadelphia and New York. And first, I'll talk about Philadelphia, which is interesting. Most people don't even realize Philadelphia has a stock exchange. I used to trade foreign currencies there on the overnight shift. And then I moved to New York to trade at the American Stock Exchange. And unfortunately, I was working there on September 11th. That must have been a tough time for you. Yeah, it was it was a rough month, and it was funny because the what's rather odd about it is with the forest fires in California, it was the first time where I felt like air quality had gotten to the point where it was bringing back memories of New York in the aftermath of September 11th. That's quite a memory. Um, when did you leave trading? Uh, I left New York in. January of '02, and then I continued in the trading business for another couple of years, and then migrated out. What made you leave trading? Uh, it I I wanted to be what's called a local and basically work for myself or for a small group, and it got to the point where you you had to work for a big group or a big bank to stay in it, and it just was not not fun anymore, and the the risk profiles weren't. Uh, appropriate. And sure enough, the banks collapsed a few years later. Not a coincidence. <laughs> not <laughs> not meaning I was keeping things less risky, but the banks, they shoved out a lot of the little guys 
and with less distribution of risk comes greater risk to the whole system. Well, I think for anyone that was paying attention, and I'm going to say between, let's say between 2001 and 2004, anyone that was really paying attention to the lending environment with the Nina loans and the um, you know no income, no asset, essentially saw what happened coming really early. They saw the writing on the wall. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, banks, banks got greedier, more and more reckless. And unfortunately, I, I think they're lending, they're doing better about lending standards these days, but I still, I've seen a few tendencies with, uh, with regards to the markets, especially where I feel people are taking too much risk. I agree with you. So I'm going to take a right turn here and move on to your current endeavor. Can you share where you're working right now and what you're doing? Yes, I currently work for uh, Muse Virtual School. We are based out of Calabasas, but we are fully virtual. And our school has a sustainability initiative. It's one of our five pillars. And can you give a background on Muse School? Yeah, so Muse School was founded by uh, Susie, Susie Cameron and Rebecca Amos, their sisters. Susie is well-known to many people. Uh, her husband, James, was also part of the founding of the school. And Susie started an initiative at Muse. Susie and Rebecca, they're vegan. And we started an OMD program, one meal a day. So all our lunches, our kitchen, everything was vegan. In fact, I think we had one of the... We were classified as a vegan restaurant in, I believe, California, and we had one of the highest certifications for the quality of veganism that we adhered to. Now, some might argue that there are already enough schools. Why did Rebecca and Susie feel the need to start Muse? So their philosophy was going to be around project-based learning and flexibility with the students. And the idea is every student gets their own education plan, right? A lot of a lot of public schools, a lot of private schools, they'll make an IEP, individualized education plan for students that request it. And we will do that too. Sometimes they require all sorts of testing to say, oh, you, you can't get an IEP unless you have this learning difference or that learning difference. But at Muse, everybody's open to an IEP because each student has unique needs. And the, the size of Muse, we've kept Muse small, and that has allowed us great flexibility. Can you give an example of an IEP? Yeah, just, you know, a certain student, you know, your, your typical high school math is going to be algebra, geometry, algebra 2, pre-calculus. Well, some kids go a little bit faster than that. Some kids go a little bit slower than that. So we've had students that we've split up Algebra 2 over two years. We've had some students that we start them on calculus as a senior or as a junior. We can move up. I had one student that we offered him a computer science as an elective because he requested it. So every, every student's different, and we try and accommodate anything students request. And... What are some of the results you're seeing right now from these IEPs? Uh, we have seen, you know, one of the unique things about Muse is the seniors, every graduating senior at Muse has to have a capstone. 
And that capstone is basically a half hour presentation in front of your peers, your parents, your relatives. Uh, we had one virtual capstone last year, had 90 people in attendance for one student. And he only had 12 classmates, but he had 78 friends and relatives outside of the school that joined the, uh, joined the Zoom. And the capstone is the summary of your entire high school career. So you go through kind of subject by subject. You, you come up with an overarching theme to your, your educational journey. And I, last year, which had been my third year at the school, and I had taught part-time for the year before that. So I had seen, this was the first group of graduating seniors. I'd seen them every year at the school. And I'd say we had three or four kids that had significant learning differences. And it was, it was so satisfying to see them graduate and they acknowledged the struggles that they had early in their high school career and were very specific about how they overcame these struggles. And yeah, part of that was Muse giving them an IEP, their own IEP, and making sure that we could set them up to succeed. And, you know, we've got kids going to NYU and Chapman and Pitzer. So we, we, have, we have students going to some of the finest universities in the country that had they gone a traditional, more traditional route, those opportunities may not have been open to them. And do you happen to remember what his project was about? Uh, the projects, well, there, let's just... I'll just generally state for senior capstones, right? We've had kids focus on their achievements and their interests and their passion projects. Every student at Muse has to do one passion project every semester. So some students led with a couple of the passion projects they love most, right? For example, we have one student, music. He did almost every semester some sort of a music passion project. So his capstone, of course, had a music theme. We had one student was photography. She was very much into photography, and her her uh, capstone had a theme that was related to photography. We had another that considered herself an artist, but she was she did various forms of art, of which poetry. And prose, she considered considered part of her art, and her theme was centered around a website that she had set up called Hot Tubs and Skeletons that was dedicated to helping artists. So every every uh, capstone has its unique theme, and it takes you through their journey. And it's it, they get very emotional. Tears are definitely shed at nearly every capstone. Sounds like a wonderful moment. You know, earlier this year, I released an episode, I think episode 50 or 52, with a young lady by the name of Louisa. And um, when she was a senior in high school, she was able to negotiate with the principal, I believe, because she had good standing and good grades, the idea of a personal capstone, almost like an IEP, like you mentioned. And she ended up starting her own company, designing wind turbines modeled after cuttlefish. And so I think, you know... allowing students to essentially, and I don't want to say just pursue their passions because that can get kind of out of hand sometimes, yeah. but pursue what they're interested in or actually, mm-hmm. you know, focus on what they're interested in can really, you know, change how we view education. I think um, I heard it recently said that 
we need to encourage more students to learn for knowledge and not for careers. Absolutely. Yeah. Muse, we, you know, your passion project, it doesn't have to be something you are, we've been talking about changing the name of it because we've had, we've talked to some other schools where we're, we've dealt with many different school systems and other uh, administrators of other schools. So we've, we, we kind of know what's out there in the progressive realm. And one of the issues that we've looked at, maybe we need to change this from a passion project to an interest project, but there, that doesn't really ring true. But the point is exactly what you said, Raj, which is you want to find something that they're interested in and pursue it. Like we had one student one year, he did it as a joke. He was like, I'm doing it on pickles. He was, he struggled every year with, yeah, he struggled every year with coming up with a topic. He was like, I'm doing pickles. And it was, it was so satisfying to see that he turned this pickle project. It was the first time he really, he really dove deep into whatever his, what his passion project topic was. And he actually went to visit a place where they made pickles. He made his own pickles. It was in this kid, he was, you know, he's humorous and such a great presenter, but we hadn't seen it before. He'd done two or three passion projects before that, and they were very lackluster. And this was the first one. And then the rest of his passion projects after that were fantastic. He always had a tie to pickles. It wasn't, he actually, I think he kind of toyed with it possibly being a career, but I think he's pursuing a career in, uh, in uh, the veterinary space, but he actually did entertain being doing something with pickles. Well, it's amazing how deep you can go in pickles, isn't it? Yeah, no, right? Because you can get it. We, uh, our passion projects, we require you to tie it to all your core, all of your uh, core academics. So you've got to have a history portion, an English portion, a science portion, a math portion. So you know, we obviously went through the fermentation process and thing like things like that for science, and you've got to have a tie-in to sustainability as well. So his tie-in to sustainability was just in general about food preservation and the importance of food preservation in the future and that pickling has helped enable food preservation. So I'm glad you brought it back to sustainability. Can you walk us through the five pillars of Muse? Yeah, so Muse, we are our five pillars, we have sustainability as one of our five pillars, which again is the primary reason for our discussion today. Besides sustainability, though, we also, we have uh, OMD, which I talked about earlier. Again, that was, uh, was, Susie Cameron has a book on it. It's basically saying you want to, you don't have to be fully vegan, but if you just did one meal a day vegan for the planet, you're going to save X amount of thousands of gallons of water a year and all these things. So less meat, less cheese, less dairy, etc. So uh, OMD is one of our five pillars. Our other five pillars is project-based learning. I've talked about the passion projects that we do. So we, everybody has to do a passion project every sem semester. Then we've got communication. We, uh, one of the unique things about Muse is we, every student gets educated in what's called PCM, Process Communication Model. And the process communication model basically divides everybody up into six personalities. And it's not to pigeonhole you, 
it's to help you better understand what way you communicate best and what way you can communicate best with others. So everybody knew, for example, I'm a thinker, big, big surprise, right? Scientist, science teacher. And so I'm a thinker. So everybody knows the way you communicate with a thinker is you just ask them questions and we just start rambling, right? So as you're, as you're finding out today, Raj, um, but there's one of the common personality traits is the rebel and the rebel. We know the rebel needs action. They need, they need contact. They need to be out playing. So there's several students. I know they, it just kills them to sit there. So I can see if I can see that kid getting antsy. So they're trying to be better with their rebel personality. And then I'm trying to give them time outside to make sure that they've, they're getting that release. And especially virtually, that's even more difficult. How do you, these poor kids are stuck behind a screen and if they've got a more playful side to them, it's really tough to come through. The fifth pillar is of Muse is academics. And it, right, so we are a school. We teach math, history, English, science, all these things, in addition to the communication and the sustainability piece. And as part of our sustainability piece, we have an extensive seat to table and cooking program. Our seat to table program has stemmed from we have fantastic garden beds at our campus where we are growing a lot of our own food, but we're also just growing stuff because it's fun to grow and for kids to learn. You know, we had we had one kid, his passion project, he grew, uh, what was it, dragon fruit and jelly melons, I think, These weird spiky fruits that I'd never seen before. And then they're not in, they're invasive to California, but he just wanted to see if he could get them to grow. They really grow in more tropical regions, but he was able to set up his own greenhouse, and uh, that was a fantastic project. Yeah, dragon fruit is quite an interesting-looking fruit. So going back to sustainability for a moment, recently I had the pleasure of interviewing Glenn Branch, the deputy director of National Center of Science Education. And there's a lot of, um, I don't know if conflict is the right word, but a lot of challenges right now regarding teaching sustainability in schools. How have you been able to do it successfully and what are perhaps some things that, you know, school systems or ISDs can learn from watching Muse? Yeah, the, the thing that's unique about Muse is that we, we come at sustainability from several different places in our curriculum. So obviously, the first place we come at it is from uh, science. So I make sure there's a, I have a sustainability unit every year of science class. I teach 7th through 12th science. So we have a sustainability unit every year unless you're taking physics or chemistry. So I haven't been very good at incorporating sustainability in those two areas. And I definitely should. Uh, I will be working on that the next couple of years. But if you're taking biology, 7th or 8th grade science, and then the other unique thing about Muse, have you come across many people, Raj, that are teaching an actual climate change class? To my chagrin, I can tell you none. So we made climate change class, and actually we even, things got so much worse in the year after we started it, we now call it climate crisis, uh, because it is a crisis. But we offer that, that is a science class that is mandatory for graduation from Muse. You take it either your junior year or your senior year, 
depending on what your interests are. And we, even if you want, you can take it junior year and senior year. Senior year is more of a project-based climate crisis class. So you do more research projects and reports. They're almost like mini passion projects. So when a parent is looking into Muse or they're interested in bringing their child to Muse, what conversations do you have with those parents regarding, let's say, sustainability or you know the OMD program? And how do parents take that? Well, yeah, the OMD, when we started OMD, they started that a few years before I had come to Muse. They lost a fair amount of parents over that. They're like, oh my God, you're going to make my kid eat a veg- vegetable-based meal? It's like, okay, there's pasta and a salad, you're, I mean, that's, that's going to be a huge inconvenience for you. Yeah, we're sorry. But yes, that's, you know, if you want to, if you, you got to walk the walk, if you want to talk the talk. So sustainability is factored in through the OMD program. And, and the parents now that come on board, they understand it. Now, obviously, virtually, it's a little bit of a different issue. Um, but one of the other major sustainability issues we had is you can't bring a plastic water bottle to school, right? We don't, we really are down on plastic consumption. And in my climate crisis class that I teach, cl- plastic is not necessarily a climate change issue, but it is a sustainability issue. So I, we do mathematical modeling around it, and I hate to say it, but plastic production has been exponential for a long time now, and it shows no sign of letting up. So the, the plastic consumption is something that we really look at, at with our Muse students and trying to have everybody cut back on their plastic consumption. So you mentioned virtual a couple of times. Can you paint a picture for us, you know, a day in the life of Muse prior to COVID and now post-COVID? Yeah, so Muse is an outdoor school. We're not 100% outdoors, but the kids look out there they look out their uh, windows and they can see garden beds everywhere. And you have seat to table outside a couple times a week. Um, you have lunch outside. So as a community, it's a very outdoors community. Virtually, they still have seat to table class, and they still and the, the seat to table has merged with the Muse Chef. And they, it, it involves a combination of vegan cooking along with seat-to-table and seat-to-table techniques. That the younger kids right now are doing a project where they're all composting at home. So they're starting to do composting. We, the compost piles at Muse are right by where everybody eats lunch. So you can see where your compost ends up. But now people we're having people do it at home and start their own composting at home. And... Is there any, or are there any plans for expanding the Muse program with schools? Yes, there are, needless to say, that was derailed significantly because of COVID. We had uh, several, several places globally where we were going to start uh, franchises that's still in the works. Um, but for now, we just want to get through this time for COVID. But Muse Virtual is, is here to stay regardless. And we're hoping, hoping soon to, when, when it's okay, we're hoping to have in-person school again, also side-by-side side the virtual platform, or possibly even a hybrid. Again, every student's going to be different, and there might be certain students 
that might uh, might have a high profile that are gone significant portions of the year. So they might be in person for part of the year and virtual for part of the year. So we're, we're open to anything. One of the great things about Muse, I learned my first day there, I, I was worried I had joined a cult. I was like, this is <laughs> so phony. Everybody's, everybody's so open about stuff. And it's like, no, that's how everybody is. We, the faculty, we all work together. Everybody's curriculum is flexible and adjustable. And part of our, that's been part of our strength through COVID because we are all flexible and able to work together and cooperate and keep the students on task. You know, it's interesting you say that regarding the cult and transparency because I wrote an article, I think about a month or two ago about, and the article is titled, Bring Yourself to Work. And essentially I led off with, you know, we have bring your child to work, bring your pet to work. And my argument, if you will, is, you know, if we were able to bring our entire self to work as early in our career as possible, then when we encountered these kinds of transparent environments that you speak of right now, we wouldn't feel like it was, you know, phony or cult like this would be the new norm. It, yes, definitely. I can't agree more, Raj. Yeah, if everybody's it, it, the more sincere you can be at work, the more you can be yourself at work, it's better for everybody. And I know I've, you know, I've had those jobs in the past where you were you were one person at work and then you were one person at home. But Muse, everybody is who they are and and, and again, this it gets back to our communication model, the fact that, you know, you kind of know what everybody's personality is. You know what their interests are. You've seen passion projects from the students. You've seen teachers asking questions in those passion projects, indicating their interest in students' passion projects. So that sincerity and that passion for personalized education really comes through and everybody, but it it has to start with openness. If people aren't open to new ideas, they aren't open to changing ways of thinking, if they're not open to a different education model, none of it's possible. And one last question regarding Muse, you know, this pandemic period, I know a lot of parents in where I live who have decided to withdraw their children from school and decide to attempt homeschooling or some other kind of schooling model. Does Muse offer a curriculum that, you know, an individual can go and look at and perhaps emulate? Uh, we will be more than happy to give you a copy of our blueprint and you will see uh, all the standards that we cover. We have a regular elementary, middle school high school curriculum, but then interspersed in it is you get seat to table, you get PCM, the communication model, you get theater, uh, you've got art. And depending on what grade you're in, those are actual pieces of the curriculum. And of course, as you get further on in school, those become electives because you're right, you're getting ready to go to college. You want to make sure you have certain things on your transcript. So maybe you're missing a foreign language. You need an extra year of a foreign language. So maybe you're doubling up on foreign language one year. You don't have time for any electives. But typically, uh, we're, we're offering everything out there for, for students um, for college so, prep. 
So I will put a link to the site in the show notes, and I'm going to get to the crux of our conversation. So you're an electrical engineer, MIT educated, material scientist, I'm reading here, specializing in microchips and circuit boards, Yes. worked in stock exchange, (laughs) and here you are teaching science and and leading sustainability at Muse. Yes. What's your why? What drives you, you know, why do you decide to choose this path? Well, I, originally I came to Muse because I, I I knew I wanted to go into teaching, but and I had been doing tutoring. I had a I had a small private tutoring business, and I knew I wanted to teach. But I the thought of having twenty five students in a class, thirty students in a class, I'm like I don't think I can handle that. Right, I I would be great at say an AP level with like ten or fifteen students, but I most schools were not going to let me just jump in and be AP calculus teacher, AP physics, or AP chem teacher. And uh, one of my tutoring students had started at Muse, and I was like, oh, this this place seems interesting. You know, there's like ten or fifteen kids per class, etc. I was like, I could handle that. It sounded like they're really open and really flexible. And I had a few more communications with my student, and then they had an opening for a science teacher. So I applied, and I, they needed somebody that was going to be able to teach all the sciences. So my strength is definitely in chemistry, but I also have a solid background in physics and in biology. So it was just a great fit for I could get into teaching and I wasn't going to be thrust into any kind of a, a public school situation where I was going to be held to many different standards and I had to make sure that I was covering all the right standards for all the kids. There was going to be a flexible curriculum and I could take the curriculum in directions that I found beneficial for the students. So what were your thoughts about sustainability prior to joining Muse? Yeah, I, you know, that has to be my biggest eye opener since I've been at Muse, Raj, is that the, the again, I talked about plastic before. That's, I, I'm much better. My plastic consumption has gone down drastically, although it's still, it's so, so much packaging is still in plastic. Um, but me personally, I rarely will have a plastic water bottle anymore. I try and carry around my water bottle. My uh, my hardcore, you know, everybody's got their own uh, metallic water bottles these days. But I, you know, and I knew we needed to burn less fossil fuels, right? My my wife and I, we have a Prius and we have an electric Fiat, so we're almost almost ready to be off the grid with our automobiles. But I didn't realize the OMD tie-in. The didn't realize that veganism is probably the future of humanity. One of my projects in climate crisis class and in biology class, I assigned them to tell me what is the carrying capacity of the earth and why, right? Is is the carrying capacity 10 billion? Like many people believe, oh, well, we're at 8 billion now, it's going to be 10 billion. And I've really looked hard at that. It's a question I didn't spend any time on five or 10 years ago. Now I'm becoming obsessed with it. Because I've read a lot and what I know about our consumption and what I know about people's refusal to accept the climate crisis. I think, unfortunately, it may be $2 billion 
might be a realistic carrying capacity because I feel like nobody is going to go vegan. Not nobody, but very few people are going to be able to go vegan. Very few people are going to cut back on their fossil fuel consumption. Uh, the excess consumerism in America. These are all issues that I didn't give much mind to, but it news, it's central to the curriculum. So that leads nicely into my next question, which is, and you mentioned an item already regarding OMD, but what are some of the most valuable lessons you would say you've learned in your journey? Um, well, yeah, I think individualized education, that we've got to, we've got to be more flexible with our students. Whenever we force students into, uh, into one style of learning, they're lost, right? We're at Muse. We don't like to use the word test. We prefer to use the word assessment. And our assessments, one of the things as teachers we've been obsessed with, we've, I can't tell you how many meetings we've had as groups at the middle high level what are the different types of assessments we can give kids, right? You know, when I got to Muse, it was all about, okay, here you go. Here's the problems. Do the calculation, do it. You know, and maybe I'd have a few questions about explain. But what I've realized is you've got to give kids alternative ways of being assessed. So I, I like to give a lot of take-home tests now where – Go ahead, work on it at your own speed. There's no time limit. Yeah, there's never, the one thing I've never been big on was time limits. I, unless you're an emergency room doctor, I've never really understood the whole time limit thing to tests. It, it seemed to me completely unnecessary. So the lesson I've learned is we need to assess students alternatively and we need to assess them personally, right? The, the conventional view of education and the conventional education model probably works fairly well with about 50% of the kids. But then what do you do with the other 50%? So we need to, we need to find more accommodations. And, and again, project-based learning is one of those ways. As long as you give, I found the kids that, you know, that have that outlet and are doing a project that they're genuinely interested in, they, it tends to improve the rest of their academics. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, especially regarding the assessments and the individualized education. I was reading an article, I think a year or two ago, and they were speaking about healthcare. And, you know, right now we go into a pharmacy and they give us, or they've been giving us what we call broad spectrum antibiotics, no matter what your, you know, gene makeup is or DNA, everyone takes the same thing. And they're saying that, you know, our children will have the opportunity to have individualized medicine. So there'll be medications provided specifically for their DNA and for their particular gene makeup. And I feel very strongly, as you do, regarding education, hopefully having those opportunities too soon. Because to your point, so first of all, you and I can have a whole different conversation regarding time. I have a whole different mindset about time. I don't know if it's because it's culturally based, what it might be, but um, yeah. to your point, you know, if, if you're given an assignment at work and you have, like you said, a hard and fast deadline, okay, fine, fair enough. But otherwise, you're given the opportunity to go home and to work on it or get it to when it's complete, not to rush it. And I feel with these standardized testing specifically, which, you know, time and time again have been proven to be perhaps culturally biased or racially biased or whatever it might be, I think using this, this you know, this broad spectrum approach, if you will, with testing has definitely, um, disadvantaged whole segments of the population. 
Yeah, it, and it's 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 easier. It's much easier to do with the younger kids, right? Obviously, K through six, but even I feel like seven, eight, nine, and ten. It's like, okay, draw me a picture of what's. You're an artist. Draw me a picture of what's going on. Uh, if, if you want to have an oral examination, so it's just you and me talking one on one. We can do that. I know you know how to do this stuff. Yeah, it's it's again, it's this openness. We've got to be more open to other ways of assessing students' abilities and skills. Math obviously is a big limiting factor with a lot of science, right? You're not, I you know, I warn the kids in chemistry class. Unfortunately, chemistry and physics, it's a lot of math. It's very they're they're quanti- quantifiable sciences. They require a lot of quantitative based calculations. So we can't get around that. But all these other types, there's a lot more alternative assessments that we could be giving kids rather than just tell me what photosynthesis is. You know, I do have that question that will be for my biology students. If they're listening, that question will still be on there. But I'd like if you want to give me the more uh, the more ethereal view of photosynthesis, which is, hey, that's how plants get food. You know what? That's pretty good. I don't need to know six H2O plus six CO2 gives me glucose and 602, you know, that those days hopefully are behind us. Well, we're not looking for regurgitation, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. So painted a beautiful picture of Muse, shared some lessons you've learned along the way. Magic wand, and I know that you don't control everything around Muse, but let's say for a moment you do. 2025, where would you like to see Muse being, including, like you said, some of the franchise opportunities or global opportunities? Yeah, well, one thing that I really hope for Muse, and I, I forgot to mention it earlier, was uh, we have developed a sustainable certification at Muse. And the way we've set it up is if you just complete Muse as a high school student, the natural curriculum of Muse, you will have taken seat to table for four years. You will have done seven passion projects with seven uh, sustainability tie-ins, right? All of our passion projects require a sustainability tie-in. So I would like to see our sustainability standards somehow grown out, becoming more of a state standard, more of a national standard. So I don't know how we can do that, but that in 2025, I'd like people to be looking at Muse and say, these are the people that helped develop the sustainability standards that everybody is looking at now. Well, I feel like the winds are shifting in your favor, and it wouldn't surprise me if more school districts would start adopting some kind of, even let's say sustainability curriculum Let's leave the certificate out for the future, but um, I think I think there's going to be a greater demand for that going forward. Yeah, I, I would hope so, Raj. I'm still obviously I'm incredibly disappointed that uh, the United States is we're one of the greatest con- contributors to climate change, yet we're the ones that are most resistant to to coming up with solutions and ways to mitigate climate change. It's it's so mystifying to me how we continue to rationalize our our addiction to fossil fuel. And it's not so much our addiction to it. It's that we're not willing to do anything about it. State of California did some great 
incentives and we have more electric cars on the road here than anywhere else and we have more solar installs on our roof than anywhere else but there's still many pockets of the country despite being ravaged by severe hurricanes that don't see sustainability as a priority in their lives very disappointing well i I can see your disappointment but on the other side of that coin i can also see the opportunity so for those out there i think you can see plenty of opportunities with to participate yeah and and again i at seat to table i feel like i've been hearing more about seat to table programs at at more and more schools even several public schools can't escapes me now i know there's a school up in berkeley high school there that they do they have a significant seat to table program they have school lunch where they a lot of it is is homegrown and uh i i'm hoping that this trend will take off because Composting. Composting is one of those things before I got the muse, I knew a few people composted, you know, and I, I teach biology and it's like, oh yeah, that's why we compost, duh. You know, so it's about moving those cycles along, keeping the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle moving along. Composting is a very important part that should be a part of life. And it's that next generation, if, if that's part of a sustainability curriculum, we're going to have that next generation is going to be composting. I agree. So Russ. Yes. Last question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Again, I've said it too many times. Now maybe they do think Muse is a, is a cult, but openness. Openness is so important, right? The only way I've gotten through COVID is to be open about things. You got to be you got to be open to wearing a mask, but you got to be open to to the needs of others. Be open to their opinions. Yeah, every once in a while they get a little off the rails, but be open to opportunities for yourself. Don't say, "Hey, I I'm sure at some point in my life, oh my god, I'd never be a teacher." And here I am. I love teaching and I'm Again, I'm teaching at this unique school where we're trying to kind of trying to turn the earth a different direction that uh, that's been going on for hundreds of years. So it's been if I hadn't been open to this opportunity, I wouldn't be where I am now. Well, Russ, I think that's a great place to leave off openness. I appreciate you being on and I look forward to connecting again with you soon. Thank you very much, Raj. This is a great opportunity. Thank you. All right. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.